Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in African-American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Omari Averett Phillips, the host of the channel, and today we'll be talking to Dr. Ethel Morgan-Smith about her new book, Path to Grace, Reimagining the Civil Rights Movement. Dr. Ethel Morgan-Smith, welcome to the show. Thank you, and thank you for inviting me. I'm excited to be here. We're excited to have you. Um, so, Dr. Smith, I, I wonder if you could just start the interview just by telling us a bit about yourself. Oh, I my name is Ethel Morgan Smith. I live in Birmingham, Alabama. I taught for 24 years at West Virginia University, and um, and I've taught at other places. Virginia Tech was the beginning of my academic career. Uh, I've taught at Randolph College, I've taught in Europe. I had a Fulbright Scholar to Germany, which is one of my books too. I have three books now, so yes. So um, yes, and I'm working on, if you're a writer, you're always working on something. Uh, you, you know, you, you you put it aside and you go back and say, oh, oh, I think I got this better now. So yes, I'm always working on something. <laughs> awesome. Well, how did you come to this particular project? Oh, you know how you go through a phase and a lot of people start to die of a certain age. And I remember well, it was uh, a lot of civil rights icons were dying. And I go, oh my God, you know, every time, you know, Julian Bonds and the others. And, and then I thought, well, what can I do? And I started spinning my idea around and I had this long list of a hundred people and it just evolved because one thing I learned that you have to have some access to the people to do it. Um, but uh, some of the people died, some of them died. It, you, you know, one of the things I do know is from my first book, I try to interview the oldest people first because they typically die first. So anyway, and it just got down to these few people. So when I finished the interview, then I um, uh, wrote it in prose. And then there was something missing. I had to figure out a way to connect these essays. And so what I did, I said, oh, I'm a child of the civil rights movement. I could talk about my life in between. So that's how it came about, yes. Wonderful. And so this book sort of expands our and extends sort of our conventional understandings of the civil rights movement. So what what made you decide to sort of make that sort of expansion by talking about sort of other people that were involved in this movement as well? Well, because the idea of so many icons were dying, I started thinking about how many people that we don't know who, who you know, had a voice, who were warriors in the civil rights movement. 
And I just started talking to different people. And as I talked, I got ideas. Uh, so that's how I, you know, it got started. I think you asked me another question. Um, so then I decided I need a connection with the people I had interviewed. So, and I started thinking about my own life. You know, I, I'm a child of the civil rights movement. And I remember one publisher said to me that he had a problem because I wasn't part of the civil rights movement. I didn't do any marches. So that's when I, I go, well, there were so many other things to do. There was so many, so much behind the scenes were going on. And anyway, and it's like, well, that's okay. I don't want them in. <laughs> so anyway, so yeah, but it worked. Once I made the connection with some flashes of my early life until my adult life, and it worked uh, well for me. So yes. So how did you go about finding these people that you interviewed? Well, some of them I knew already or had known a long time ago. Um, the first people in the book are um, Sandra, Dr. Sandra Ford is a childhood friend whom I hadn't seen in 40 years. And then when I moved to Birmingham, we reconnected and I got involved with their project and their work. Um, Mr. John Canty, who worked for presidents, uh, I didn't know him. He was the first interview I did that I never met him. Someone introduced us and that person was a historian, uh, but he was just your lovely uh, person. So lovely. So as a matter of fact, very honest, And he, but he still also had a sense of humor. So yes. And that definitely comes through the chapter. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, okay. what, what were these interviews that you conducted like? What were the interviews that I, I didn't hear the last part? Oh, sorry. What what were the interviews? Uh, what were these interviews actually like with these individuals? Well, okay, they were different. Like I said, I was a little nervous with Mr. Candy because I didn't know him and had never met him. When I interviewed uh, Constant Curry, for an example, I knew her, and that's hard in a different kind of way. She, you know, she was a public figure. And uh, I had known her, I think I started the chapter with, I hardly remember a time when I didn't know Constant oh. Curry. And because that's the way that it was. Um, let me see. Oh, uh, there's a woman named Andrea Lee who lives in Turin, Italy. And we became friends when there was Skype. Remember Skype? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> because uh, she was a, a writer for the New Yorker. And um uh, teaching African-American literature, I was always looking for middle-class Black people uh, to uh, read about, expose the students to, because it's easy for students to think both Black, white, other always, uh, that Black people were always poor. So trying to introduce, so that's how I started reading her. And uh, so she was a great person to interview with, yes, yes. And do you, do you have a favorite story from your interviews that you could share with us? Well, I think that I interviewed uh, Susan Perry uh, Cole, who was one of Shirley Chisholm's legislative aides. And uh, I had known her 40 years ago and that kind of thing. So we did this reconnection. She lives in, in North Carolina, Rocky Mount. So she was recalling back what it was like. She said, oh, God, I thought it was so chaotic and so unhealthy. People were smoking and, you know, this kind of thing. So... But Mrs. C, as uh, Ms. Chilson was referred to, um, was very proper and prim because she comes from the Caribbean and her early school was British. 
So the Congress, she was the first African-American woman uh, congresswoman, decided that they would put her in her place. So they put her on the Agricultural Committee, knowing that she uh, represented Brooklyn. But history has a long reach, and we don't think about this. For an example, she took it, and that's why we in this country have food stamps, and that's why we have the WIC program. Isn't that marvelous? That they should, you know, she, hey. And she became friends with a Senator Buchanan from Alabama. And I I think, if I recall right, Sue said that he said, well, I don't think we knew who we were dealing with, <laughs> you know. So I love that story uh, that she didn't complain, didn't whine. She just took it and did something else with it. Yeah. So, but there are so many stories. Uh, when I go back now and try to think of them, Mr. Canty joined, uh, he joined, he's joined the ancestors. Uh, Mrs. Moore, the woman from West Virginia, she passed away. But they were all in their 90s. And I was so happy to get their voices and hear their stories, you know, and how pleased they were that uh, someone was interviewing them. Yes, yes. And so you, you talked a little bit about the, the connective tissue that you sort of created in this book, right? And so in between sort of the larger chapters of this work, you have these short sort of vignettes uh, of your upbringing. Um, so what purpose do these stories play in the organization of this book? Well, what they do, uh, it serves as a, a memoir um, to my life. Because I think the first one is book notes, and it ends with... Um, my mother died, and I'm with Nikki Giovanni. Her mother has died. So I grow up through these uh, interviews and that kind of thing. So that's the purpose that it serves. Yes. Awesome. So uh, chapter one, you focus on your friend, as you said, Dr. Sandra Ford and her husband, uh, Henry Michael Ford. So who are they and what led them to the path that they chose? Well, it's an interesting path that they chose and, and, and very challenging. And they've been doing it for about 20 years now. So if I, re I think I, re I wrote this, it's in the book. I hope I remember the story correctly. They were dating. And one day in the gym, uh, Henry said to Sandra, do you know anyone who could kill a member of the clan for me? And she said, you know, this is the school teacher's daughter. This is the doctor. No, we don't, we couldn't live that kind of life. So they decided to turn their life over to God, as I, if I'm quoting them correctly. So they both went to theology school and to see what would happen with their lives. So this organization was born as a result of that. Yes. And can you tell us a little bit about the organization and the work that they yes, do? Yes, the, yeah. the Spirit of Luke. Um, what they do, they have a medical mobile unit uh, and they use volunteers. Uh, for an example, a lot of medical students uh, here at UAB who are interested in serving, volunteering, and that kind of thing. And every place they go, they go into the Black Belt, the poorest areas in Alabama, every first week in of the month. And they serve. Uh, things have had to change because of COVID, of course. Uh, but they, um, they bring food. They bring vaccinations. Some of the people have not seen a doctor in 10 years, 15 years. Uh, they've added a pharmacy uh, to the program. Uh, they've added food, they've added a clothes bank. And it has just over 20 years has grown and what they do for these people. And um, the people are so thankful.
thankful and so appreciative and so humble. And it's just amazing to see them um, and to hear them sing and to do what they do. And in chapter two, you focus on the very historical uh, and important life of uh, John Canty. Uh, I love this chapter so much. I, I As I was telling you, I, I smiled more than <laughs> I have read a book in quite some time, especially with this chapter. Um, so why is Mr. Canty important? Uh, and why do you think his life has sort of escaped this historical examination up to this point? Well, I, I, I think that... I, number one, I was surprised that no one had interviewed him. Uh, that was surprised. And he's a very gracious Southern gentleman. So he wouldn't have gone after anything like that, but he would just live his life. Um, you know, he had these stories to tell about, he, he was started with um, President Johnson and he went through until the Reagans. And after that, he retired. He worked in the White House for 18 years. And they really wanted him, as you, as you, you know. And so he went over and um, to be on detail. You know, if he doesn't like it, he could come back uh, kind of thing. And he ended up staying there. But he was very smart and he was very political. He didn't talk much. He listened more. And he had, he never would say anything negative about anybody, you, you know. But it was funny. Uh, what you could do is make him laugh. You know, that was funny. And, and he said all these memories had come back to him that he thought long ago um, were tucked away. Yes. But he had a very nice laugh about him. And he had been part of a team who did some renovations for the church. So he wanted me to see that. So we went over to see his church. And yes. So the church ladies considered him. Um, um, let me see. How shall I say this? They were always leaving pies and casseroles at his door. <laughs> and they would put notes on it. Uh, Mary would uh, want us to take care of you. So he said, hmm, Mary would want you to leave me alone. You know, so, so he was quite, he had that kind of wit about him. Yes. <laughs> And and so I, I understand that the Southern Gentleman portion, why, why do you think other um, people haven't or didn't reach out to Mr. Canty while he was alive? Well, I just think that's the way we, that's the way it is in, um, in our society. I think that Black history has been so whitewashed and we have to go back and find it. And I was lucky enough to find some of these people who, you know, who had a voice actually, who participated, not in a traditional way, but um, all of them that I interviewed gave money. Uh, you know, the civil rights movement was a, a big part of their lives. Now, Mr. Candy said not a whole lot changed in real life. He said one of the things that he honored Johnson for was appointing um, Thurgood Marshall to the Supreme Court. He said that was a big deal. And another big deal is when he passed the um, poverty program. Yeah. So he said that that made some changes. He said, but other than that, it wasn't as much change as the nation, as the news, the journalists said it was. But I think ultimately it became, because when I say we, history has a long reach, we never know what one little effort will end up being. You know, I think that... Uh, Oh, Isabel Wilkinson does a great job in her book, uh, The Warmth of Other Sons, when she talks about how 
Barry Gordy, all those singers got together. They got together because their parents moved north. If they had stayed in Alabama, Arkansas, you know, it never would have been. So that's what I mean when I say history has a long reach and we're not always aware of it. So what I wanted to do was to tell um, personal stories about the civil rights movement. Like I said, about people who are overlooked. I think the New York Times now has a uh, obituary column called Overlooked. And it, it's made up of a lot of African-American people who made great contributions to this country, but at the time they were overlooked. And I think that's that's what we need to do. We Because we, we don't think of, a lot of people don't think of um, what their parents or their grandparents went to, you know, kind of thing. Because Black people through enslavement were taught to be silent. You could die if you were. So there's this these voices of silence that we don't hear about, but they come from somewhere, and that's where they come from. Like, but eventually some, someone will talk. Eventually someone will get excited about your project and talk, yes. And uh, Constance Curry is a friend of yours, someone that you say, obviously, in that first line of the of her chapter that you can't remember a time when you didn't know her. Um, and her life intersected with giants of sort of the civil rights era, these sort of names that we all Absolutely. know. <laughs> um, well, she was such a role model for me because when she went to law school, I thought she was 40. And when I went to graduate school, I was 37. And I remember thinking, well, surely I could go to graduate school. Connie, she was 40. Uh, so anyway, so when I was interviewing her, she goes, I was 50. <laughs> That's how she spelled, I was 50, you know. <laughs> well, she and Julian Bond have been best pals for a long time. Uh, since I think she was 25 and he was 19 when they first met. And she said, we just sat around and told dirty jokes all the time. You know, she's, <laughs> but she was so serious. And, you know, when she talked about uh, being in Mississippi uh, and the white women were less of a threat, so which means they weren't going to shoot them down, how scared they were. Uh, you know, I just had this utmost uh, appreciation for what she did. It was marvelous. I don't know if I could have done it, but we never know what we can and cannot do until it's upon us. But I, I just loved her even. I have never, like I said, I've known Connie where she's passed away, but I knew her, all, you know, 40 years, maybe longer. Yeah. Could you tell us a little bit about the work that, that she did? Well, Connie did um, biographies a lot uh, because in Mississippi, of course, people called upon her. So her first book is a book called Civil Rights. So when the law, the land, said that Black uh, students can go to this school or that school. So she wrote about the Carter family. They had 12 children and they enrolled them in the white school, what we call. And so Connie and some of the other women went down there to make the transition smooth. And those kids finished school, and I think most of them, some moved away, but they uh, maybe eight or nine of them went to Ole Miss. So Civil Rights was her first book, and she had and and there's a film production about it. Uh, then she did a biography of uh, Aaron Henry, who was a pharmacist, and he was going to go to college, but he 
went into the army instead. And uh, she said he called her and he said, plenty have asked to write my write about me. I don't want anybody to do it but you. And then she did another one. Um, it's the white women who were in the civil rights movement and what some of them went through. We don't think of that. Some of them got shut out of their families. You know, they lost, you, you know, we don't think about their loss. So I think it's just important to do that, that everybody comes to the table because everybody has a story to tell. Yeah. Right. So that's what I try to do in my writing. Yes. <laughs> and I think you succeed in that for sure. Um, so the last chapter of the book focuses on your interview with Nikki Giovanni. Um, can you take us through your sort of relationship with Nikki Giovanni and the topics uh, that your interview with her touched upon? Oh, I've known Nikki for so long, let's see. So I think I told you I went to graduate school at Holland, was 37. And one day um, I had moved from Atlanta and my son was uh, gone to college in, at Wesleyan in Connecticut. So one day I'm just unpacking and listening to NPR and I hear this voice and I go, that was a familiar voice. So listen. So in the end, the reporter said, and we'd like to thank Professor uh, Nikki Giovanni. And I go, oh my God, he's, she's a poet and she teaches at Virginia Tech. So I go, oh my God, that's 40 miles from here. So I did something something as simple as I wrote her a letter. <laughs> she did something as simple as she wrote me back. <laughs> and then uh, I got a job <laughs> and we developed a black studies program. That's one of the strongest programs they have now. And so we have been friends ever since. Uh, in fact, yesterday, maybe before yesterday, she called and goes, we're stuck. We're in Nashville. We're trying to get a, a plane to Birmingham. At least we, we you, you'll have us. You know, it was so funny. So I go, why are you out? You should be at home. <laughs> but anyway, so that's how the relationship started. And uh, we still write letters. Uh, we do this thing. We both collect African-American stamps. So with Nikki, a lot of things become a competition. <laughs> so... Uh, and I always beat her. I, I won't tell you how I beat her. I, just, but <laughs> I have a trick. And she goes, I don't know how you do it. You just moved to Birmingham. Oh, anyway. So anyway, so we, we do that together. We love tennis. We love cooking. Um, you know, it, it just works. It just works. Yeah. And, and what did you both talk about in your interview? Oh, when I interviewed her? Yes, yes, yeah. Well, it's like... We'll start talking about one thing and we'll get off subject and we have to get back on subject. And it's not until I get the interview transcribed and read it and go, hmm, I have to go back a second time and ask, you, you know what I mean? The more specific you are, because Nikki will start, she'll, she'll go back something that doesn't have any relationship to it. But that's the joy of doing an interview with her. You, you, you don't know where it's going to take you. <laughs> yes. And it always takes you somewhere fabulous. Yes. <laughs> and so what, what sort of audience did you imagine for this work? I see it as a general kind of audience. I didn't, it could work in a creative writing class. It could work in, um, in a high school class. Uh, it's a very traditional kind of story. It's just that I use a non-traditional structure to tell this story in. But Anyway, when you write and you 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 have to be daring and try new things, you know, it's like, well, this should work. I I, I got it. Do I need to put 
vignette. And it's like, no, no, no. So anyway, so I, I'm, I'm so happy that it worked. Yeah. yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm curious, what, what is your writing process like? Uh, well, I've been writing all my life, oh, as far as I can remember. <laughs> so I write when I can. And if you've taught at a university, it's demanding. It's hard, hard, hard to cover out. Even with tenure, it's still hard. So I write when I can. And what I do do is I have a writing journal. So when I think of something, I jot it down. Not a personal journal, but just my writing journal. And sometimes I go through it for ideas that I wrote down about something. Yes, so, yeah. Um, I get up early in the morning, not by choice, because I have a dog who gets me up early in the morning. And usually I start working. It's too early to call people. And, you know, you look up and go, I need to make this phone call. And you look up, it's like, oh, it's 6.15, you know, <laughs> or 7 o'clock. <laughs> so anyway, but that helps me. I'm better in the morning uh, than I am as the day goes by. And sometimes it depends on what I'm working on. If I'm just reading something and see, trying to figure out if something works or not, it tends to take a little bit more time. Uh, probably I have jotted down two or three ideas with that piece that I'm having a problem with. And then you go back to it and see if it works or do you need to start all over again? Yeah. I, I, writing is rewriting. <laughs> That's what I tell my students. That's, the more you rewrite it, the better it gets. <laughs> yes. As someone that has a dog that gets up early, I, I understand me getting up early and just trying to be productive. So I get it. Well, right. And nobody's up and it's quiet. You, you know what I mean? So it, it works out well. Yes. And, and you know, get you in a routine. I like routines. Yes. And what do you want readers to take away from your book? I want readers to take away that I'm sure there are stories in their families that uh, I want them to rethink their family stories or talk more to the elder family members to get these stories. They, and when they're gone, they're gone. You know, it is so valuable. Uh, but I think that too is part of the civil rights movement, preserving our history and not just dismissing it. You know, like sometimes when I can't sleep, I watch the little cute kids on TikTok and um, so they have a, 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 this is supposed to be comedy, except I don't find it funny. So you'll have teenagers saying to their granddad, granddad, were you a slave? <laughs> you know, and it, and people laugh, but it's, it, it, there's pain in that for me, that you don't know when slavery was, it wasn't with your grandparents. And it's very important that you know that. Uh, it's, the big it's the best of us now you know what I mean and the least you can do as an inheritor as an heir is to understand uh, the time period and that kind of thing so yeah that rattles me a bit <laughs> understandable uh, well, Dr. Smith, we've taken up a lot of your time, and thank you for being so generous with your time as well. Um, so I'll ask one final question. You've already sort of talked about it a little bit, but maybe you can expand a little bit more. Uh, what are you working on now? What's this project that you're uh, sort of tinkering with? So Okay, so I've never talked about it before because I keep here, and you shouldn't talk about what you're writing. But anyway, um, I'm working on a collection of essays, and white people will be the center of the stories. 
uh, white people that I knew or thought I knew when I was growing up. So that's a little bit different too. That, that all, all the center of the, you know, we used to have a doctor uh, who used to come and do house calls on Thursdays in our neighborhood, uh, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, so that's what I've decided to do is once again, play with some structure a little bit. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And, and what are some of the challenges that you're finding in that? Oh, I'm not finding any challenge. Oh, I, I haven't gotten that. Uh, no, no, no. Another thing I'm working on is um, one of the people in in in, in the uh, path is Ann Cole who is getting some attention now, but she's very important. I'd like to see, I don't know if I can do it, a biography of her, but she was born in a town that I am from, and I knew her, one of my classmates' father was her first cousin. So we always knew her, but I, I would like to um, see how that would go. Uh, as a, I've already written one chapter about her, and I started writing a play about her. So I, we'll see what happens. <laughs> Awesome. That sounds amazing. Um, well, Dr. Ethel Morgan-Smith, uh, again, I want to thank you for coming onto the show. I want to thank you for the work again, uh, as I said to you, and as I, I think I've said already, but I will repeat it. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed this book. I, like I said, smiled more often than I have read a book in quite some time. Um, well, and I'd like you. to encourage people to go out and uh, buy this book. Um, well, and Valentine's Day is coming up. <laughs> it is indeed. There you go. That's a great present for it. Uh, exactly. Again, thank you for being on the show. I really enjoyed the interview and again, really enjoyed the book and take care. Thank you. Thank you for everything. Bye-bye.